His wife is a wonderful woman. She just had her their, their fifth baby, a little boy, four girls, and a little boy. And so um, she's doing well. Dad's doing well. So he has five moms now. <laughs> That's right. Before I came, we pointed that out. Yeah. They're all like looking at him. <laughs> five moms. Good luck. Uh, so please help me welcome Dr. Stephen Hildreth, who Thanks, carries guys. on a wonderful career. Yeah, we got a good group here. Um, we're parishioners here. Who's, who's parishioner here? St. Michael's, yeah. A little bit of a mix. Good, good. Um, so I think we have about an hour and a half, and um, we'll cover a whole bunch of bases um, in terms of NAPRO and the church and, and um, the teachings of the church with regards to fertility and how that's impacted women's health. I want to give a little background for myself first, just so you guys have a little framework of who I am, kind of what I'm doing here, why I'm talking on this. Um, I'm an OBGYN, now just GYN, don't deliver babies anymore, just gynecology at Houston Methodist Hospital down in the medical center. Um, been on staff now for four or five years, I think going on five. The head of our, uh, the Methodist Reproductive uh, Robotic Surgical Program, so specialize in a lot of uh, surgical treatments for reproductive issues, and then also work solely in the area of medical and surgical NAPRO technology. Have you all heard about that? Anybody heard about NAPRO technology? Just, you can just raise your hand. Yeah. Totally informal tonight, okay. So, um, uh, uh, show of hands, who's heard of NAPRO technology? Okay, for most people, have a few, few who have it, okay. So NAPRO technology stands for Natural Procreative Technology. What is that? Um, it was founded or started at the Pope Paul VI Institute in Omaha, Nebraska. Who's heard of the Pope Paul VI Institute? Couple hands, okay. Um, uh, a couple hands at least. So Pope Paul VI Institute is a, a wonderful medical institute that was started in Omaha, Nebraska. It's kind of the family business, I say. Um, it was started by my father, Dr. Tom Hilgers, who has really been a pioneer, not only in terms of what the church teaches with regards to women's health, but also pioneering medical advances in the area of reproductive health. And it was founded after Pope Paul VI, who is really essential to the church's teachings on this area. And we'll touch, about, we'll touch on that here um, in terms of the foundation of what the church teaches. The institute was founded in 1980, or so, uh, and we now have about 30 or 40 years of research in the area of cooperative uh, treatments for the reproductive system. So to help couples and women in the areas of severe PMS, to polycystic ovarian syndrome, to recurrent miscarriage, to endometriosis, to infertility, so a whole host of areas. And we'll talk about tonight kind of why that has kind of, how, how we've come to that and juxtapose that towards how gynecology treats uh, reproductive dysfunction disorders today and the difference between those two and really how that stemmed from the church. So the Pope Paul VI Institute around 1980 really was foundational in research and development in this area. New medical treatments have come out of that in the areas of natural family planning and also gynecologic treatments for these different disorders. It's still going strong today. It's culminated in um, practitioners who teach a certain charting system, which we'll go through here in a minute. Those teachers are all over the world. We have thousands of teachers who teach what's called the Creighton Model Fertility Care System of Charting. We're, those teachers now are teaching this 
um, form of gynecologic and family planning method in every country around the world except for Antarctica. So we'll have someone there eventually, I guess, <laughs> um, with a big thick coat, whoever can stand it. But in every country but Antarctica, it's really quite amazing if you look at the reach. We have hundreds of medical consultants who are trained physicians who learn this natural family planning method and understand medical applications to it so they can see patients, they can see couples, and they can work through these disorders in a cooperative fashion. You'll see those tonight. And then we have about 20, oh, going on 25 fellowship-trained OBGYN physicians now. So these are OBGYNs like myself who go through the full residency program and then go to the Pope Paul VI Institute for a year where they learn the advanced treatment that is cooperative in nature with the reproductive health. And they're practicing all across the United States now um, and um, are very well organized in research in these areas. Um, so that's the background. So I grew up in Omaha, um, literally grew up licking envelopes at the Institute. That was my first job was licking stamps and putting it on there and trying to get doctors interested and folks interested in this work. My wife is from Houston, and so therefore I'm now a Houstonian. So one thing I learned as Houstonians, they do not leave. They don't go to Dallas, they don't go to the Woodlands, they do not go anywhere. They stay right here. In fact, when we first married, we all went to SMU, and I said, wow, Dallas is a great city. It's zoned, there's no cockroaches, it's perfect. She said, well, who would go there? That's so far north, it's ridiculous. So we stayed here, uh, and we set up our practice in Napa Technology at Methodist here in the Medical Center. Um, we have a second physician who should be joining us in the next two or three years. She's doing the fellowship program in Omaha. And then we also have three additional fellowship-trained OBGYNs at Caritas, which is a wonderful group, at St. Luke's in the Sugarland area. So we have four fellows who work in this area every day, see patients every day, uh, treating in a cooperative manner these issues. So that's my background. Um, and I love talking to groups like y'all about this because I feel like we're kind of like grassroots. I always ask patients that they come in, how did you find out about us? And it's always the most interesting story. It's usually a friend, or it's, you know, I went to a church thing like this, and then, you know, so there's always, it's, it's, it's out there, but I think in kind of the mainstream, um, we don't hear about it much. And most importantly, um, we don't understand the church and how the church has been the impetus for all of this. I think when we go to church and we, you know, and we think about reproductive health and medicine, our first response is probably not, you know, what does the church have to say about this? Um, in terms of treatments and those types of things, right? We go to the gynecology office, and we're probably apt to go listen to the doctor first, right? Um, and I think when the tire hits the road, we're going to see a doctor, we're thinking, you know, the church, sure, I know there's some teachings out there, don't really know what they are, maybe some of you are more well-versed in them, um, but they're there, and they're the heart of the church in terms of the teachings on reproductive health. And they're really beautiful teachings. And you'll see as we go through this how it is literally culminated in a new science that works every day positively and cooperative with female reproductive health and in the lives of couples who are trying to achieve pregnancy, going through recurrent miscarriage, and those types of things. Um, so it's so important before we even get into anything is we said we need to look and see what has the church said about reproductive health and, and, and these issues that uh, individuals face every day, women face every day, 
or couples face every day in terms of family planning and those types of things. Um, so I do want to go through that a little bit. There has been a cultural shift in women's health care. So going back to 1957, that's when the FDA approved the birth control pill. So 1957. And it was approved for the medical treatment of irregular cycles. So women who have irregular cycles, abnormal bleeding, it was approved for that reason only. Um, it was to help regulate menstruation. In 1959, half a million women were using the birth control pill. You can see the numbers here to regulate their, their cycles, but also util utilizing this contraceptive side effect. So it was introduced as a medicine to help regulate cycles. And, and as it was introduced, folks started realizing, you know, I kind of, uh, there's a benefit to the contraception effect of it, right? And so we know now that the pill is ultimately used, uh, not ultimately, but one of the main reasons it's used is for contraception, for family planning, correct? So since 59, 60, a year later, it was approved for as an oral contraceptive. So it started as a medical treatment, a couple years later, oral contraceptive. 1965, one in four American women under 45 were using the pill. And now in 2013, 100 million women are using the birth control pill. So it's exponentially just exploded. It's really taken off. And it truly is, I refer to the birth control pill as the baby aspirin of reproductive medicine. It is literally prescribed for everything. Um, I see it every day in my office. I work in, a, in our OBGYN department. And so, of course, I have partners who uh, treat with the birth control pill and use those things. It has literally taken over gynecology. PMS polycystic ovarian syndrome, irregular cycles, pelvic pain. The birth control pill has become the first line. Now, with this shift, what were the churches doing? So the pill was kind of taking over. Millions of women are using the pill now. Um, in 1930, all denominations condemned contraception. Every denomination did. The Anglican Church was kind of the first break in this dam. In 1930, they said it's okay in limited circumstances, and that was followed in 58 with approval in all circumstances. With that, now all Protestant churches um, have accepted contraception. The only church that still stands by the principle of uh, against contraception or condemning contraception is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church stands alone in proclaiming the historic Christian position on contraception. That's it. There's no other church. It's the Catholic Church, and that's it. And so we're going to look at that and say, well, is there any wisdom in that in terms of women's health? And kind of why is that? I think a lot of folks go to church, they hear that. We know the Catholic Church is against contraception, but we really don't understand why. And I'm not speaking to you individually, because I'm sure some of you have read on this and do know why, but I find that why is not very well understood or answered. And it's really incredibly important to understand it. So why, why does the church say that? So there's been a lot of great teaching of the church on this. Um, there's two guys here. The left is Pope Paul VI, who the Institute is named after in Omaha. And we all know who that is. That's St. John Paul the Great now, uh, JP2. Very instrumental in their teachings on sexuality and reproduction in the church. And largely, if you want to go pick these up, they're easy to get, wonderful reads. Theology of the Body, St. John Paul the Great wrote Theology of the Body. It's a series of lectures, actually, at St. Peter's Basilica that ran from 79 to 84 on the body, on the reproductive system, on contraception, 
and, um, uh, and the fruitful nature of love between a married couple, okay? Love and responsibility, same kind of thing. Carol, won't you? That was uh, JP2 before he was Pope, and he published this book in 1960, okay? Humana Vitae, who's heard of Humana Vitae here? You all have heard of it, half the room maybe? Humana Vitae was an encyclical um, that was written by uh, Pope Paul VI. And it came out in, I think, 1968, 1968, I think, because it was the 50th anniversary last year. So the 50th anniversary of Humana Vitae was actually celebrated last year. It kind of hit the church like a big dud. So it was the, it was the, the encyclical, the, the church's decision, this was in the 60s, and the church was trying to debate this whole, do we follow the Protestant churches? Do we, do we say contraception's okay? Do we say it's fine in certain circumstances, limited circumstances, or all circumstances? Or do we say no? And everybody out there thought that the church would come out, Pope Paul VI would say it's fine. Okay? Even a lot in the church, a lot of the priests in the church thought that they were going to come out, they are going to say it's okay. Hubana Vitae comes out and essentially says it's not okay. And it's not allowed. It's condemned within the church. And so with that shot, or that, that encyclical, which is a really short read, it's only about 20 pages, and there's so much awesome information in that, um, I'd encourage you all to read it. it it's, it's an easy read, and it's wonderful, and it's so full of wisdom. And so at that time, the church was bucking kind of that social trend. And in a way, has been living with that ever since. So I think a lot of people look at Catholic churches and Catholics and say, everybody's doing this. You guys are so like medieval. You know, this is like the dark ages. What are you all doing, right? But the church said no. And for very valid ethical and moral reasons, and at the heart of it, supporting not only the woman and their reproductive health, believe it or not, but also the couple, okay? So this is what Humana Vitae said, birth control is unlawful, it goes against the human and Christian doctrine of marriage. Equally to condemn, be condemned as sterilization, and similarly excluded as any action which before, at the moment of, or after sexual intercourse is specifically intended to prevent procreation. Okay. JP2 expounded on these ideas. It said, why? Well, God is creator, right? I think we can all agree, right? God is the creator. God creates life. We don't create life. God does, okay? And the church says that that occurs within the vocation of marriage. And that God allows man and woman, man and woman, and this is really important to think through, to be partners with God to co-create. Okay, so if you think about that, it's the one time where we are allowed to be co-creators with God. That's really powerful. God is inviting couples to come and create a new life with Him. Okay? It's not us creating new life. It's God is saying, come and we will co-create together. It's very, very powerful okay? in terms of thinking through life and creation and especially new life. Okay? And so the church is saying, through that marriage vocation, man and woman, God is allowing them to come and co-create. And that all of a sudden changes our thinking about having children and creating, right? And those babies, right? So it's very, very important. That's the church's teachings on that. Therefore, marriage is meant to be monogamous and a durable institution. So it goes to the heart of the Catholic teaching on marriage, okay? 
and that it's a sacrament and not just a legal union. Okay? With that, there needs to be an openness within the sexual act to life. Okay? And the possibility of parenthood. So JP2 talks about this as possible parenthood. What that does is it eliminates, okay, that openness to life during the sexual act eliminates a central egoism or it's all about me, right? And so there, it takes away the selfishness with regards to that act. The objectification or the exploitation of the spouse. Believe it or not, that happens. So we're not objectifying our spouses anymore. We're taking that spouse, we're accepting their fertility, they're accepting our fertility, with the possibility of co-creating with God, right? It's honoring the natural procreative order, paying justice to God, and results in true love between a married couple. Contraception drives a wall, and it may not be one that you think about. It might just be as you taking a pill or an IUD that just don't need to think about. But it is essentially suppressing fertility, right? And saying, I want all of you, but not your fertility. I'm accepting all of you, but not your fertility. Does that make sense? And so it truly does create, subtle or not, um, a wedge or a line that says, I'm not accepting all of you, but I'm still going to upset, upset, uh, accept that objective part, the sexual intimacy, the relationship part. Does that make sense? It's also... Driving a wedge, believe it or not, or creating a wall between you and the co-creator and your spouse and the co-creator. Okay. So do you all start to see that dysfunction that occurs within that? Finally, human love, we're taught in a way that nobody can show self-restraint, right? I can't tell my husband that we can't have intercourse today. There's just no way, you know? We want to be spontaneous. It's spontaneous. If it's not spontaneous, it ruins everything. And therefore, contraception is really important because then we can't be spontaneous. Actually, periodic abstinence has been shown to increase love between spouses. Because you're accepting fertility. You're talking about your fertility. And you're accepting each other. Okay? It affirms the value of the other person. So the Pope wrote, or St. John, uh, John Paul the Great, I should say, wrote that understanding the natural methods for the regulation of human fertility challenges us to respect the body of our spouses, encourage tenderness, favor education, and appreciate the innate language that expresses the total reciprocal self-giving of husband and wife. Contrary to that, when we look at contraception, contraception is objectively contradictory, okay? It's not giving one's total self to the other. It leads to a positive refusal, okay? And a falsification of the conjugal love between spouses. In Humana Vitae, Pope Paul VI specifically said, the church is not going to accept contraception for these reasons. But also understood at that time, that in doing so, we needed, or we need, doctors and nurses and scientists to come to the call of all of these Christian Catholic couples who need help in these areas. You know, knowing that the contraceptive, the pill, is being used for gynecologic treatment, 
calling researchers and scientists to come and help in this area. And so at the end of Humana Vitae, there's this call, and it's, it's, we refer to it as a papal call to men of science, women of science, to come and research and, and, and develop a secure basis for the regulation of birth. That's natural. That's in conjunction with the natural fertility. And to obtain the knowledge needed to give married, per, married persons who consult with them wise counsel in this area. So the cultural shift. Let's talk about the cultural shift. So the 50s, we have the birth control pill. The 60s, the church come out, comes out and says no with humana vitae. All the other churches in American world water are going with contraception, right? So where are we today? Where are we today? It's really important to think, okay, where are we now in women's health? Okay, we're 30 years, 40 years, 50 years removed from this. Where are we? So I'm an OBGYN. Went through regular residency, regular medical school, UT Houston here, practice at Houston Methodist. Where are we today in women's health? How do we treat disorders like infertility, like recurrent miscarriage, like these things? And how has the advent of contraception, the birth control pill, potentially affected women's health? Okay. What's happened is the introduction of hormonal contraception has led to a nearly universal acceptance in the field of gynecologic medicine as the first line treatment, we just talked about it, for the vast majority of gynecologic conditions, okay? Current women's healthcare treatments, I would argue, are objectively contradictory to the female reproductive system, okay? Do we all know how contraception, how the birth control pill works? I'll give you a quick little primer on it. So it's, they, these are hormones that are taken, the artificial hormones that are not real. Okay, so they're artimones. Often they have estrogen or progesterone in them, but that's not real estrogen or progesterone. They're so, oftentimes tweaked, they're synthetic, they're designed to help with acne or hair growth or different things that, uh, PMS, those types of things, that suppress the body. So it essentially makes the female body uh, assume a pregnancy state. So it shuts down ovulation, not entirely, but it shuts down ovulation for the most part and suppresses the entire system. And so by shutting off the reproductive system in a way, that becomes the treatment for the underlying issue. Does that make sense? So it becomes suppressive in nature, not cooperative at all, but suppressive, okay? So it's suppressing the system, it's shutting the system off. So it's objectively contradictory to the female reproductive system, acting to suppress. It leads to a positive refusal of the female reproductive cycle. So it says, you know, there's dysfunction going on. Instead of looking at that and fixing it, we'll just suppress everything, okay? We'll just shut it off. So it's a refusal or a lack of acceptance to the natural female cycle, natural female hormones, natural ovulation, all of those things that are so important to women, okay? And it's a falsification. So in a way, for example, with irregular cycles, or women who have polycystic ovarian syndrome or are not cycling at all, it will result in cycle regularity. But that's a falsified cycle. Those are not real cycles. Those are artificially produced cycles, okay? So what we see in our clinic is oftentimes we have couples who come in or women who come in 
and they've been on, on birth control for years, and we say, well, you know, why did you start the birth control? Was it for a medical reason? And oftentimes it is. Well, I was 16 years old, and I started having irregular cycles. Well, did anybody tell you why you had irregular cycles? No, they said, just take the birth control pill. They've been regular ever since. Okay. Now I'd like to come off. I'm married. We'd like to have children. Or maybe they don't agree with me. Or maybe I'm just sick of taking them. There's a whole host of reasons. Maybe I can't. There's medical reasons why women can't take birth control. And it becomes a new discussion of, well, let's find out why you have irregular cycles. And for those 10 years on the birth control pill, that individual woman was thinking, I am healthy now. I'm having regular cycles. But the intrinsic issue, whatever it is, is still there. It's not fixed. Once the birth control pill is stopped, it's still there. Okay. So it leads to a falsification, which is really important because we have to decide, not just as doctors like myself, but also as individuals, what do we want to accept for our health? Do we want to accept or look into underlying causes? Or are we okay with just taking a contraception and kind of suppressing things? Because that is what's going on with uh, the birth control pill in many, many instances. Okay? And I don't mean to just harp on the pill tonight. That's not my goal. But it's really important as we get into natural technology to kind of understand where we are as a society and as physicians and as medical doctors in this area. So the church's response to women's health. So this is a little bit of what's going on now in 2018, a whole lot, in the area of cooperative treatments, not only family planning, um, but also in gynecologic treatments. The Pope Paul VI Institute we mentioned in Omaha, Nebraska. Medical and surgical naprotechnology. Um, this is a picture of the textbook that was, I think that was 2004. It's about this thick, <laughs> written by Thomas Hilgers. Uh, on all of the medical applications, and a few of them will be looking at those tonight. The Society of Procreative Surgeons, which was just recently founded by myself and several other physicians in 2017, which are the 2025 um, OBGYNs who are fellowship trained in this area around the country. And so we have a, a national group now devoted towards research and advancing treatments of these areas. The American Academy of Fertility Care Professionals and the Fertility Care Centers of America, um, which we'll get into that in a minute. So with the church's call, which was, hey, you know what? We need doctors. We need nurses. We need educators. We need researchers in this area, and we need to get to it. We need to start figuring out some treatments for folks because there are very real gynecologic issues. And for individuals who don't want to take contraception, don't want to be on artificial hormones, or for whatever reason want to look for the underlying cause, we need to figure it out. And from that call, in direct response to the call, the institute was formed. And from that, we now have a reach that's worldwide in all of these areas. So I want to talk first about the fertility care system. Who's heard of the fertility care system? Has anybody? Good, awesome. The fertility care system used to be called the Creighton model system. It's a gynecologic charting system, and it's also a family planning system. Um, it was one of the first tools that was developed by the Pope Paul VI Institute. Now, back in the 80s, natural family planning had a real bad name uh, associated with it. It probably still does if you talk to certain individuals, uh, just in terms of effectiveness and those types of things. But in, in a way, folks did not have a reliable way of planning their family. Right? And so there's a lot of jokes that come with that, right? Natural family planning and then fill in the blank. 
And so one of the goals of the Institute was to develop a charting system that was a family planning system that couples could use effectively to both achieve and avoid pregnancy. Okay? And they did that with this system. It's a modified version of the Billings ovulation system that doctors John and Lynn Billings were uh, back in the 70s and early 80s huge advocates of natural family planning. They were in Australia, both were pediatricians. Um, I was fortunate to get to meet them at, I think, like eight or nine years old. Two of the nicest people you've ever met, and they were really inspired by this work, um, and they started the, ovulations met the ovulation method. And from that, the Creighton model, which you're looking at here, the fertility care system was developed. It's an objective gynecologic chart. Um, we'll get into that in a minute. Women are taught how to chart their own biomarkers, so bleeding patterns, dry days, and cervical mucus days. Very easily done, standardized, and objective. Why is that important? Well, anything in medicine or research, it needs to be objective. It cannot be subjective, okay? And so if you need to do research, you need to have a good research tool. And this um, charting system became just that. And over the past 40 years, we've used this charting system to dive into everything from low progesterone to PMS to infertility and develop cooperative treatments that are in conjunction with the natural reproductive system of the woman. And that is the natural procreative aspect. So this is the chart here. Um, we have our app, which is coming in the next <coughs> month or so. These are some of the biomarkers that you learn. You don't need to learn all these tonight, but if you just kind of get used to visuals, you'll see that this is the menstrual flow. So the first five days, this is day one. And that's the female menstrual flow, so five days of bleeding, and then dry days. And then as about mid-cycle, what happens? What happens about mid-cycle for a woman? Ovulation occurs, right? So what, what occurs with ovulation? What's the process? Does anybody know? Anybody know? I know y'all know this. You guys are here tonight, right? So, so a follicle develops, right? So the ovary, right? Remember the ovary? It's got a, a, a lot of eggs in it, so lots of eggs. And so early in the cycle, this little water balloon develops, and it kind of looks like one, and it's called a follicle. And inside that is a little egg. Okay, there's several that start to form. And one of them takes off, and it becomes a dominant follicle. Okay? And right about mid-cycle, the brain and the body gives a little nudge to that water balloon, and it's called estrogen. And estrogen, you all know what estrogen is? A female hormone. And it, goes, it just goes sky high. And as it surges, that little water balloon pops, and the egg comes out. And that's called ovulation. It occurs about mid-cycle. Okay? And so on this chart, that's occurring right around this peak. You all see this little P? So P stands for peak. Peak. That's all you need to know. P is really just ovulation. Just know that. Just for tonight, the basic principles. Okay, so ovulation occurs. And what happens after ovulation? Well, the egg is released. And for the first time, the female body produces estrogen and progesterone. So progesterone is a really important hormone. Progesterone stands for progestation hormone. So it's really important, especially if a pregnancy occurs. Okay, so it's very important. It's produced after ovulation by a new little guy called the corpus luteum. So that water balloon ruptures, releases an egg, and it kind of involutes. And it becomes almost like the thyroid. It's an, it's an endocrinological gland, and so it produces hormones. And that's progesterone and estrogen are produced. And if a pregnancy occurs, progesterone continues to go for nine months. If the egg is not fertilized, okay, the hormones decrease, and it all starts over again. Okay? 
So I know you all remember that from basic anatomy a long time ago, right? Somewhere in there? Okay, good. So what we're looking at is that, that menstrual cycle. So menstrual flow, ovulation in the middle, a post-ovulatory phase, and if not pregnant, the endometrium sloughs. So the progesterone estrogen thickens that endometrium in, 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 um, in anticipation of a pregnancy implanting. Okay. And if that pregnancy does not implant, that endometrium thins out and comes out in terms of the menstrual flow. Okay? All of this is tracked with the biomarkers of the fertility care system. These white babies, the green, uh, these are dry days, uh, days of bleeding. And then the white babies, that's cervical mucus. Okay? So I'm sure some of you are asking, what is cervical mucus? Well, when I was little, my dad was like the head expert in cervical mucus. And there's four boys in my family. Well, I looked at them and said, hey, you gotta get a new job. This is just weird. <laughs> you know, UPS drive or something, okay? And now every day all I do in my office is talk about cervical mucus, but it's really important. The female body produces cervical mucus. And what's the importance? Well, sperm needs cervical mucus to get to the egg. Without it, sperm don't go anywhere. So it's very important. It is, in a way, the female version of seminal fluid. Okay? Those two things go together, and it's only with the combination of sperm, seminal fluid, and cervical mucus that couples can achieve pregnancy. Those two have to be present, and it's only during that window of time. This is um, an example of the vaginal discharge recording system. So all of these uh, um, things that are charted from the white babies to the cervical mucus to the dry days to the bleed days are, are categorized and classified. Couples are taught, women are taught how to do this. Um, everything is standardized. I mentioned we have practitioners all over the globe um, that teach this system to couples. I forget how many languages this charting system is in now. But the follow-up is, is standardized. And so while that woman or the couple is learning this system, they're followed very closely, first every two weeks, and then it spaces out, and then it's just every year or so. Once a woman or a couple learns how to chart, it's like riding a bike. It's very easy to do. Most women who chart, after a year or two, they just know their body. And they know it really, really pretty well, to the point where they just don't even really need to chart anymore. We encourage them to, um, but, uh, but they, they do learn their body, which is so cool, right, Byron? Byron's one of our teachers, and Mary is one of our teachers. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't, ever start, don't ever stop charting. But it's so neat because we'll have couples who come in and they say, you know, I've learned so much about what my reproductive health is doing, I can anticipate things. That's also important in gynecology because if there's an abnormality, it's our patients who are usually diagnosing those first. They're saying, you know, my bleeding pattern's a little bit off. This is, this is not normal for me. And as you know, that's important things like endometrial cancer, precancerous things, all host, a whole host of other gynecologic issues outside of family planning and fertility and those types of things. So it's completely standardized in terms of how couples or how women learn the charting system. We have fertility care centers. So these are centers that are run by practitioners that teach the system. Okay, they're fully accredited. We have an American accreditation body, the American Academy of Fertility Care Professionals. We have the Fertility Care Centers of America, which I'm uh, on the board of, which I'm so privileged to be. 
which governs all of these centers, uh, and they're all over the world. They're in U the US, Canada, Africa, Europe, and Latin America, so it's really incredible. Every year for the past five years, we've been going down to Mexico City now and training folks in Mexico. We have doctors down in Mexico. We have practitioners all throughout Mexico and Latin America. Um, we have certified teachers, medical consultants, nurse practitioners, nurse midwives. These are all through standardized educational programs. So the fellowship program I mentioned in OBGYN is through the Creighton University Medical School. So these are not like rinky-dink programs. These are legitimate. They're affiliated with medical schools. These people are accredited. Um, education is huge, okay? This isn't like just downloading an app and somebody made that yesterday and said, hey, use this, right? Okay, um, we talked about the fellowship program in obstetrics and gynecology, oh, but let's see here. And, um, uh, and we have international and national accrediting bodies, so everybody's accredited, okay? The fertility cycle and its practical application has largely been ignored. Okay, so in research, in development, in medical treatment, since the advent of the birth control pill, the natural cycle has been ignored in medical literature. You just don't read much about it, okay? Treatments have largely been suppressive based, okay? Medicines that put women into menopause for severe endometriosis, uh, medications that help with PMS by suppressing the whole system, so on and so forth. But through the church's teachings and through the institute and what that's developed into internationally, nationally now, great headway has been made in this area. And it's really, really exciting, not just for doctors and uh, practitioners, but also for our couples and our patients. These advances are medically safe, okay? Um, are there side effects to the birth control pill? Are there? There's pros, right? There's benefits to it, like it helps with acne and regulate cycles and PCOS and stuff. But are there negatives to it? Are there, are there, are there, and we, we say in are there risks and benefits to things, right? So benefits would be it helps with acne, helps regulate cycles, helps with PMS symptoms, helps with pelvic pain. But are there risks to it? There are. So, most recently, there's an increased risk in breast cancer. There's an increased risk of cervical cancer. There's a higher incidence of blood clot formation. All of those are very real. What we're talking about today has no side effects because it's cooperative in nature with the woman's health. Okay? It's reliable, that's been proven, standardized, inexpensive, natural cooperative, and on and on and on. You guys can read through all those things. This is a picture of my dad, Dr. Tom Hilders, presenting the textbook to St. John Paul the Great in 2004. So with the church's response, the impetus in natural technology fertility care system, the drive with regards to researchers, doctors, nurses, practitioners who really want to help couples and women in this area, we have really advanced medicine in a new way that's really benefiting everyday women and couples positively and women's health has truly been transformed and I do mean that and we'll go through that okay um, family planning let's talk about it so we're going to just break down some things here um, some of the applications um, family planning why does family planning matter does anybody want to venture a guess why do we care about family planning 
I'm going to take my coat off because it's kind of hot in here. <laughs> Why do we care about family planning? Oh, I don't know. Just throw something out there. Yeah. Yes, what's your name? We only have the babies what's that can take care of. <laughs> yeah. I'm here. Why does family planning? We always want to plan everything. We do. We want to. I want to plan things. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, no, we do want to plan things, right? So, uh, but uh, it's important to couples, right? To, you know, some people, you know, Holy Spirit says just one child. You know, maybe we don't have a big enough house yet. You know, our finances aren't quite there, right? Um, maybe there's a health issue, and so we want to avoid right now. Or you know what? Maybe we're through all that. And now we want to start our family. You know, um, honeymoon's over. We're ready to start a family. Uh, honeymoon, that might be another good reason, too. I don't know. But um, uh, anyways, but it does matter. It's intrinsically important to people, right? You know, planning your family is essential to couples. Most people talk about that, you know. I think you're required when you go through the Catholic uh, program talking about finances. and <laughs> But it matters, right? It's super important to people, okay? Um, all couples should be able to plan their family. And they should, be do it, they should be able to do it safe and effectively. And what is a family planning system? Let's name some of them. Well, contraceptive, we've talked about that. I'm going to stop beating that horse, okay? I'm not trying to sound ugly about that. Please don't get me wrong. Um, we're just trying to juxtapose things today. Um, uh, uh, um, well, I don't know. There's condoms, right? There's abstinence. Um, uh, we talked about the IED, contraception, sterilization, tubal ligation. There's a whole bunch, right? What are those all designed to do? Avoid pregnancy, right? Avoid. Avoid. Do they help you achieve? Do they help a couple achieve? No. So family planning in its truest sense, I think we would all agree, should be designed to help couples avoid, right? Because that's important, right? We talked about the old NFP jokes about how they don't work and all those things. And, but should be effective to achieve, uh, to avoid. But also, we should be honest, and they should be also effective in helping couples achieve pregnancy too, right? That's a true family planning system. If we're being honest, family planning means deciding when, you, when the time is not right and when the time is appropriate, right? Not just one half of the equation, okay? Mainstream strategies, we kind of covered all of these. There's a whole bunch there. Um, these are not true family planning systems. So we cannot talk to them, we cannot talk about these as such. They are not, they're just pregnancy avoidance systems. But oftentimes when we as a kind of culture and as individuals we talk about family planning, we automatically think about these things. But this is not family planning. This is pregnancy avoidance. Right? Okay. And I don't think we hear about these things talk like that that much. You know, I don't, I don't, that don't, yeah, comes up in conversation very often, but they are. And so we need to call them what they are. Okay? The church's response has resulted in a method that is a true family planning system. Okay? If there's only one thing you guys get out of tonight, I hope it's this. Because in medical school, we don't even learn this. We learn, we have like two lines on natural family planning, and it's usually, it's not effective. That's it. The Crate Model Fertility Care System is tailor-made for both. We mentioned most mainstream treatments are designed to avoid 
2,000 couples were, spotted, uh, were studied using this method. This was published in a major journal, the Journal of Reproductive Medicine in 1998, 2,000 couples. Houston was one of those cities, St. Louis, Milwaukee, and I, I forget the other two, Omaha and, uh, and uh, Kansas City. Using the system, this is just to avoid, okay? So these couples said, now's not the time, we want to avoid. 99.5% and 96.8% use and method effectiveness. That, that's the, those are research terminology. So method means you're using it exactly as it is. Use means how we usually use it. So for example, the birth control pill, if you took it every day and never missed a day, it would work about 95 to 96% of the time. If you missed a couple and you weren't real, really on top of it, then that goes down, right? Okay. So method and use, 99.5 method, 96.8. At 18 months, it was 99.5 and 96.4. So the birth control pill is right there, 96%. The IUD, right there, 96%. It's equivalent. Okay? So this whole idea of natural family planning does not work to avoid pregnancy is a falsehood. Okay? The fertility care system has been proven, it's been published, it's been shown to allow couples to effectively avoid and do that confidently and do it safely, okay? So if your goal in life is only to avoid pregnancy, which is a fine goal, if that's what you're called to do, that's awesome. If that's what couples decide and they prayerfully consider that, that's what it is, then this method works. And there's no risk of blood clot, there's no risk of breast cancer, cervical cancer, or any of those other things we talked about, okay? Alrighty, so very important. Now how effective is it for achieving pregnancy? Okay, how effective is it for achieving pregnancy? Well, this is a wonderful graph on the studies of the, this system. And in avoiding pregnancy, 99.5 and 96.8. We talked about this. But when you give couples the ability to understand where their fertile window is, and we'll talk about that in a minute, those three to five days out of the month where a couple can achieve pregnancy, the time to pregnancy decreases significantly. Okay? In the first cycle alone, this was 100 couples were studied, 76 out of 100 in the first cycle using their charting were pregnant. That's incredible. 98 by the sixth cycle, okay? That is essentially cutting the time in half to pregnancy, okay? The fertile window, what is the fertile window? We talked about those little white babies at cervical mucus, right? Remember that? There's about five of them on that little chart we saw. There are only about five to six days in a given month where a couple can achieve pregnancy. Other than that, they cannot achieve pregnancy. Men are fertile every day, right? They're fertile every day, um, unless there's an issue, of course, but they're fertile every day. Women are not fertile every day because they have to have a little water balloon. That little egg's got to release. And that egg is only around for, does anybody know how long it's around? About eight hours, eight to 12 hours, that's it, okay? Once that egg is gone, it's over, okay? That's it. Sperm can live in well-estrogenized, good cervical mucus for up to five days. So therefore, intercourse within a five-day window leading up to ovulation can result in a pregnancy. And if couples are taught where that is, where that fertile window is, you start to see those numbers, 76 in the first month, almost 106 months. Okay. What are some ways that y'all know about to time or figure out where ovulation is? 
other than a chart? Basal body temperature, good. Any others that people have seen or used? How about apps? Have you all seen like a menstrual counter ovulation yeah. app? The apps were studied, they're only 8% accurate. They're good for determining where menstrual flow is, but there was a big study came out last year, only 8% accurate in telling couples where their, their fertile window is. Um, how about urine ovulation sticks? You've all heard about those, or clear blue calculator is one of them. Those can't be used in women who have PCOS or long or irregular cycles. They have false positive rates with them. Studies have shown that when the fertile window is used, you can accurately, consistently time pregnancy and de decrease the time significantly. This is just some data on how long does it take for a couple to become pregnant, um, just using kind of whatever. And you can see it's only 50% or 60% at three months and three quarters at six months and then 85% at a year. So if couples know where that fertile window is, they have a very re reliable method to help them achieve. Okay. So with the church's call, which was to develop reliable, scientific um, family planning systems for couples who want to achieve naturally or avoid, we now have a complete, okay, safe and effective means for couples to both avoid and achieve pregnancy. And that is a family planning system in its truest sense. And that all comes from the church's teachings. It also applies, and this is very important to women who have irregular cycles, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, infertility, those types of things too, where the apps and the calculators do not work. So where we see couples all the time come in and they're very frustrated. They're having trouble achieving, they're doing the apps, they're doing the urine sticks and all these things, and then they have an underlying issue. And so they're not getting proper readings, they're missing their fertile window, this charting system works in all of those contexts, okay? Premenstrual syndrome, what is it? Why does it matter? Well, it matters, not, to, not just to the individual woman, because they don't feel very well during that time, but their family and other people who <laughs> might want to take a step back or two from time to time, but it's a big deal. Premenstrual syndrome is a big deal. It's a cyclical recurrence of symptoms, right? So it's not just, I don't feel good today and it's a random Monday, right? Had a bad day at work, Somebody cut me off on the way home. I'm just in a bad mood. I didn't sleep very good last night. It's cyclical, okay? It's not always as a lead up to the menstrual flow where we think, okay? It can be around the time of ovulation and there's also reverse PMS where it occurs with the menstrual flow itself, okay? But it's cyclical in some form or fashion. 75% of women, three quarters of women, say they've experienced premenstrual syndrome, okay? And this is just not, you know, not getting a good night's sleep. 20 to 40% are mentally, mentally or physically incapacitated, 5% severe, higher incidence in younger women, and women who have severe hormone dysfunction at a young age, so 15, 16, 17, or 18, have higher rates of major depressive episodes, antipsychotics, and SRIs being prescribed to them early. Okay, so that's a big deal. Um, you know, we don't want our daughters to have to go through that. That's a big deal. You know, going through a major depressive episode is a big deal for folks. Um, higher incidence at younger ages. Um, moderate to severe PMS has, does impact people and women on a, on a very important scale. Reduces work hours, their ability to function, 
um, don't feel well, sometimes it's, it's incapacitating, and there's a severe form called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD, which is, uh, has an elevated risk of suicide and suicidal attempts. So a very important uh, issue for women and couples in general. Mainstream strategies, how do we treat this? So how's the mainstream treatment today, 2018? If you walked into a gynecologist's office and you wanted that mainstream treatment, what would be recommended for you? Just to give you an idea, and we'll juxtapose this against uh, with the NAPRO or the natural pro procreative or cooperative treatments. Mainstay treatment is timed anti um, or uh, psychiatric medicines, so antidepressants like SSRIs. Have you all heard of SSRIs? Does that sound familiar? So that's like uh, Prozac, Paxil, those types of things. So it's typically given in a timed benefit. There has been some benefits seen with those. It's about 43% improvement. So about half of women will feel a little bit better there. Anxiolytics, which are medicines that help you with anxiety. Um, Dependency is a real concern. These are very difficult medicines. Beyond, they're very addictive. Um, and studies show they're not any better than placebo. So the first line is to go to a psychiatric medicine. Okay, so a medicine that your psychiatrist would prescribe you. Hormones are involved. So there is a hormone called drospirinone. Um, uh, also, it used to be called Yaz. Is anybody familiar with Yaz? Okay, so it came out and they said, this is the best thing ever. You'll never have a period on Yaz. It's just going to completely knock out your cycles altogether and it'll help you with your PMS. It's a form of, it's not, it's not a real hormone. It's an artimone. So it's an artificially created a hormone in the lab called drospirinone. Um, and therefore, it does help. Effectiveness after three cycles is not known. But this is still prescribed today. And then lastly, GnRH agonists, the name you probably know is Lupron. Have you all heard of Lupron? This is a menopause medicine. So what it does is it shuts the um, mission control. We're all here in Houston, right? Remember we used to fly space shuttles? Remember Houston, we have a problem? Well, the brain mission control triggers hormones that produce ovulation, okay? And if you shut those off, ovulation doesn't occur anymore, and it results in a medical menopause. So Lupron is a big medicine. And if you're on a long period of time, you have to take hormones in conjunction with it because women start to get bone loss and they get hot flashes with it because it's menopause and we all know nobody goes you know around saying i can't wait to go through menopause i just cannot wait is it here yet where's 51 i can't wait for 51 i can't wait for menopause nobody does that it's a hard medicine to be on but if your pms symptoms are severe enough you might just take that medicine and it is prescribed in kind of those patients we don't know what to do with okay surgery is done too surgery is done by removing the ovary and so if the anti or if the uh, depressant medicines don't work and if the, uh, the drospirinone, the hormone doesn't work and then if the Lupron doesn't work or the menopause, then we say, ah, we don't know what to do anymore and so we'll just remove the ovaries, okay? And that's done. So surgically the ovaries are removed. Well, that has some big issues too, right? Because ovaries are important, right? Testosterone is produced by the ovaries so sex drive goes down. Estrogen is important for heart health, cardiovascular health. So that risk goes up, okay? So that's a big deal. I wanna speak for a minute on drospirinone. It is prescribed today in the office for PMS. So I'd say it's probably the main birth control that's prescribed. In 2009, it was linked to a higher risk of blood clots. And in 2012, a threefold higher risk. 12,000 lawsuits now on drospirinone are out there and it's still being prescribed today, still. It's on the market. The rationale is we'll take the blood clot risk because if the patient is pregnant, 
their risk of a blood clot is higher. Okay? So therefore, we'd rather have women on a medicine that could promote blood clots because they're not pregnant right now. And therefore, if they were to be pregnant, they'd have a higher risk. Does that make sense? So a lot of the rationale for birth control and the DBT risk is just that. We're preventing pregnancy, and therefore the patient is not pregnant, and we all know those nine months during pregnancy, you have a higher risk of DBT, and therefore the risk and the benefit, the blood clot, the threefold higher increase, the 12,000 lawsuits, outweighs, outweighs the, uh, the, the negative. Does that make sense? And so this is still being prescribed today, but I just want you all to understand this. These are risks that we need to know about with artificial hormones. So the summary of mainstream treatment strategies for women who suffer from PMS, which is a very real deal, we just saw that, 75% of women, very, very big deal, very important. The patients who come to me say, Dr. Hilders, this is really hard. Like, I don't feel well. I feel good for three weeks, and for one week, I don't feel like myself. And, you know, I just don't want to be on these things. And can you help me, you know? And so the mainstream treatment strategies are, again, kind of that theme, suppress and then remove the organs if they don't work, okay? Why hasn't natural hormone support been advocated? Why don't we try to treat with natural hormones? Does anybody know why? Doesn't it seem like it's a hormonal issue? You might want to give some hormones, maybe? Well, the answer is we've lost the interest as a medical field to study the natural reproductive system. So nobody studies this anymore. So the advent of contraception that everybody's jumping in, let's go for it, 500 million women now, we have literally given up on looking at the natural dysfunction of the normal reproductive system, okay? And gone more for suppressive treatments, okay? So the church's response, medical natural technology, PMS. Okay, so we looked at this chart earlier. Here's the menstrual flow, here's ovulation, the little water balloon, release of the egg. These lines down here are hormones, okay? And so if I were to go check my iron level today, as long as I didn't eat a big steak, tomorrow would be about the same, right? Be about the same. Iron level should be. Women, it's not the case. This is estrogen. Remember I said estrogen goes way high and it pops that water balloon? Well, that's what you're seeing here. This black is estrogen leading up to ovulation. It's that estrogen serves that allows ovulation to occur. Okay? This red is progesterone. So after ovulation, estrogen drops and it's formed in kind of this curve. And if pregnancy doesn't occur, they go to zero and this starts over again. Progesterone goes up and comes back down, okay? So those are the normal curves in terms of female hormones, okay? They're like a roller coaster. They go up and down and they're all tied to what thing? Ovulation, okay? So ovulation is your big milestone. After ovulation, you get progesterone and estrogen in this form before you get estrogen in this form, okay? This is a classic example of what we see in the gynecology office. This patient came in and said, you know, doctor, I don't think I'm ovulating. I don't think I'm ovulating. So the doctor said, well, I know what to do. We'll draw a progesterone level, okay? And if you've ovulated, I'll see some progesterone on that blood draw, right? This happens every day. And so that doctor said, we'll draw a day 22 progesterone level. Most women's cycles are regular, 28 days. Day 22 will be after ovulation. This patient was told she was anovulatory. She's not ovulating. The doctor was incorrect because she ovulated later. It was drawn at the wrong time. So if you're going to draw hormones and interpret them, you need to know where you are in the cycle. Does that make sense? If you don't, you come to faulty conclusions. 
how do we do that? Based on the fertility care system and NAPRO technology, our, 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 our patient tells us when to draw the blood work. So she's charting, she knows where her ovulation occurs. And based off of 30 years of research, we've developed now the normal hormone curves that women should have during the cycle. Those were developed solely at the Pope Paul VI Institute in Omaha, Nebraska. We now use those curves all over the world to help treat gynecologic dysfunction. So these are the blood draws that were done. So we wanted to look at those progesterone and estrogen curves, and so we took blood draws right here in the post-peak window, right in here and right in here, and we evaluated them. Makes sense. PMS, maybe hormones are off. Let's take a look at them, right? So we did. Progesterone, you can see. This is seven, eight, this is seven nine, and 11 days. Just think of it like post-ovulation. Progesterone in women with PMS was significantly lower than normal women, as was estrogen. Same thing, significantly lower. So with that information, you can devise a treatment strategy. You can give the woman natural progesterone, natural estrogen, not an artimone, just the real thing at the time they need it, when that thyroid, so to speak, is low for those five days. Okay. If you do that, let's compare. Fluoxetine is uh, our antidepressant. 43% improvement with only six market. Women with low progesterone, if you support them, you can get to 78% improvement. And HEG is a really neat type of support that we use that stimulates the body to produce its own estrogen and progesterone, natural estrogen and progesterone. You can get to almost 90% improvement. And that's not rocket science. That's just saying, you know, let's take a look at the hormones. They're low. Let's treat them. And believe it or not, people feel a whole lot better. It's cooperative with their cycle. It doesn't suppress ovulation. Okay? And it's something that can take their whole life. And it's fixing the underlying issue. Here's a case example I'll run through real quick because I know we've already been here about an hour. Um, and I want to get through these for you. Um, I promise we'll finish by 8.30, guys. Um, this is a 43-year-old woman who came in. These were all of her PMS symptoms you can see here. Okay, Lots of them. She was tired of being told she needed an antidepressant or birth control. She had tried both of those. She felt like she crashes about 7 to 10 days before. This is her hormone curve. So this was done in her office. This is a normal progesterone curve. This is a high and this is a low normal. This is hers. It looks like the stock market. Just straight down. <laughs> 7 to 10 days when we looked at her chart, she said, this is right where I don't feel well. Right here. And it is tough. My husband does not want to be around me. My coworkers do not. I don't want to be around myself. Okay. Estrogen, same thing. You all can see that. She was treated in a cooperative manner, marked improvement in her PMS symptoms, and to this day she feels great. She takes the medicine when she needs it. If her ovulation varies, if she goes on a trip overseas and her ovulation is delayed, it doesn't matter. She still knows when to take it because she's charting. She's in control of her treatment. She knows when to take it. And she has an answer for why she's uh, feeling the way she is. Pretty cool, huh? Pretty cool. So the church's response has resulted in accurately identifying these hormone dysfunctions, diagnosing them and treating them without suppressing. Polycystic ovarian syndrome. I want to go through this now. Why does it matter? Well, it's a huge deal. Okay. Does everybody know what polycystic ovarian syndrome is? It's a, it's, it's a very interesting deal. Um, it's uh, marked by irregular cycles that women have. It's a very common reason at a young age why women are put on the birth control pill. Results in male pattern features like acne and hair growth and those types of things. The hallmark is irregular ovulatory patterns. So ovulation is kind of all over the place and irregular cycles. There are a whole host of known issues related to PCOS from increase in breast cancer to 
to endometrial cancer and hyperplasia. So endometrial hyperplasia is a precursor for endometrial cancer, 35% higher women with PCOS cardiovascular disease, uh, and so on and so forth. Infertility is highly associated with it, okay? There's a lot of reasons we're researching for that. PCOS has a higher rate of miscarriage, three times higher, 50% in our studies with endometriosis, okay? And has higher rates of ovulatory dysfunction and lower ovarian reserve in women with PCOS. And it's very common. We always think about it as the, that kind of person who's overweight, 300 pounds, diabetic, and has PCOS. But the vast majority of women we see have irregular cycles and they couldn't look at all like they have polycystic ovarian syndrome, and they do. And it's very frustrating because it results in infertility. Why? Because that ovulation is not steady and it's all over the place. Okay? And for the other reasons we talked about. Okay? Endometriosis, 50%, ovulatory dysfunction, 61%, chronic fatigue, so on and so forth. Depression anxiety is much higher in women with PCOS. Much higher. Okay? Mainstream treatment, it's pretty much the same. So I was taught in medical school, it's the birth control pill is the only treatment that exists, or metformin, which is an insulin medication. Um, it suppresses ovulation again and creates a artificial cycle. So the, 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 the flow that occurs is not due to ovulation, it's due to the absence of the artificial hormones. Okay. Um, abnormal bleeding patterns are higher on um, birth control uh, and it does suppress ovulation, androgen, and endometrial protection. Okay. So that's the mainstream treatment. The church's response, NAPRO technology, has resulted in pinpoint accurate treatments for polycystic ovarian syndrome that are in conjunction with the reproductive health of the woman. This is that normal cycle again. Remember the menstrual flow, the ovulation, and there's the hormones. We've looked at that now a couple times. This is a chart of a patient with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so I call this the I think I can chart, okay? Do y'all remember that story when you were kids the, of the train that was trying to go to the hill? Y'all remember that? And so what you're seeing is all these white babies. And now y'all are pros in terms of reproductive health. And why do we have those white babies in cervical mucus? There's receptors in the cervix that are stimulated by the estrogen surge. They produce the type of mucus that sperm need. Okay. So in a PCOS chart, what's happening is the brain is trying to get this patient to ovulate for almost three months. And so you can see there's a surge there, there's a surge there, no ovulation, another surge, another, and so on and so forth. And then finally, a menstrual flow or ovulation may have occurred, but it took three months. So the brain is having difficulty getting that water balloon to pop and that egg to release in a consistent fashion. That's due to polycystic ovarian syndrome. So this patient was started on uh, natural cooperative progesterone support to regulate her cycles, to give her a natural flow, okay? And with natural progesterone support, it allows the polycystic ovarian syndrome to start it takes relief off the ovary, and in a high percentage of women, the ovary starts ovulating normally. Okay? And that's what you see here. Progesterone support, progesterone support, and that resulted in regular cycles. Okay? So cooperative progesterone provides cycle regularity and over time relieves the stress to where the ovary can start to ovulate it on its own. We also use a whole host of natural supplements that have been shown to be low from vitamin D to alpha lipoic acid to CoQ10 to us, a whole bunch of things there. But with PCOS, you can devise a natural procreative treatment that does not suppress ovulation and allows the couple to start looking for steady ovulation as they're treating the long and irregular cycles. Okay? They can also use the chart to time intercourse around ovulation because it's so erratic. Okay? 
and with that they can achieve where they can't use those other modalities. This is a patient who came to us, she had severe PMDD, or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, that severe kind of PMS I told you about. She had pain with her cycles, PCOS, irregular cycles, bipolar, multiple psychiatric medications. She knew her symptoms were related to her hormones, and her chart showed that long, irregular um, kind of um, pattern you all just saw. The first step was to get her to have regular cycles. So we treated her with medical management, natural progesterone support, in time with her, in, in time with her cycle. She was also started on insulin medicines, natural support, and cyclical progesterone. And following that treatment, she she's finally had cycle regularity and her abnormal bleeding pattern normalized, along with her ovulatory patterns. She achieved cycle regularity on that alone. And this is her chart, so long and irregular. And then you can see, eventually, she was having normal cycles again, okay? And ovulation somewhere in this neighborhood, okay? See, you don't have all these white babies anymore. You have a nice lead up to an identified ovulatory day. This is another example of that patient later on as her cycles became more regular. Do you all see that? So once we got our cycles regulated, we could then identify if there's hormone dysfunction because she had severe PMS. And similar to that other patient, we evaluated her estrogen, and this is her estrogen curve. This is her progesterone curve. So people ask all the time, why does PCOS have a correlation of miscarriage? So we see patients every day in my office who have a history of recurrent early pregnancy loss or miscarriage. The vast majority of those have hormone dysfunction, like PCOS. Or just in general, we're born with an ovulatory dysfunction, just like this. And a lot of those manifest with symptoms like I have severe PMS, but I'm also having miscarriages, or I have PCOS, and I also have miscarriages. The reason they do is because they have poor post-ovulatory hormone support. That's one of the main reasons. Those hormones support a healthy endometrium. They're also related to infertility. So we know now that progesterone Post-ovulation supports the endometrium and helps with infertility. And low progesterone after ovulation is associated with infertility. So now we can help in that area by supporting these hormones, adequately supporting the endometrium, and also not only making her feel better, but also taking that risk of a miscarriage away. You can't eliminate all the risks, but the major risk is the low progesterone. We see it every day. These patients have PCOS. It's never diagnosed. They're put on the birth control pill, they get married, they come off of it, they're having trouble achieving, maybe they have had a miscarriage already or fertility, and we start unpacking it and you start to see the answers. Do you all see this? So it's so interesting, all these things are linked. We say all the time, your gynecologic health are fingers of the same hand. Your PMS symptoms, your pain, abnormal bleeding patterns, long and irregular cycles, ability to conceive, miscarriage are all connected to your reproductive health. This patient now is off all of her psychiatric medicines but one. She has regular cycles um, and she's doing really well. Last time I saw her, she said, I have a boyfriend for the first time, so cool. But when she came in, she was really having a hard time and she's off all of those medicines now and she has regular cycles. So um, treatments now are tailor-made for women who have long and irregular cycles, polycystic ovarian syndrome, where the only help that folks get is the birth control for PCOS. Well, what about the patient who has PCOS and wants to get pregnant now? Well, they can't be on birth control because how do you get pregnant on birth control? Well, you can't, right? right? Or what about the woman with severe pelvic pain and they're placed on birth control for it, but now they want to achieve pregnancy. Well, you can't be on birth control anymore, right? right? So you see these issues are important outside of just the family planning um, perspective of things. Okay? So not suppressive 
cooperative, and with that, the woman can start to see her fertility returning. And I think that's the most joy we get out of this, is we see couples, we see women see their fertility responding and healing. And that's such a neat thing for people to see. Okay. Infertility. This is a big one. We probably could have spent the last hour and a half on this. I'm sorry, I know maybe some of you are coming to hear about this, or I don't know, it's a big part of NAPRO, um, and, and we work through this every day, okay? Um, why does it matter? Well, it's huge. Infertility is such a difficult thing. It is so central to what people want so, so badly. My wife and I went through three years of infertility. I know it personally. We also went through a miscarriage. Very difficult things to go through. Very difficult. Um, puts a lot of stress on a married relationship, really tests your mettle. It can bring folks together, just like anything that's difficult can. But it's difficult. And one of the reasons it's difficult is oftentimes I, th I feel like folks maybe just aren't quite getting those answers that they need or want. Um, what is infertility? So it's a year of trying and no pregnancy, essentially. Uh, earlier we saw that chart where it said at, at, at a year, 85% of people who are just trying should be pregnant, right? It affects 10 to 15% of couples of reproductive age. One in six women report it that they've sought professional help for this. And with the advent of artificial reproductive technologies kind of around the country, they're more available. We've seen women seeking more help in this area, certainly. And we've seen that demand go up and that supply has also gone up. Sharp increase in demand since the 80s. That was the advent of IVF, in vitro fertilization, artificial reproductive technologies at that time. And that has truly exploded in our country in terms of those artificial treatment systems. Um, the, the fertility rate has certainly gone down in our, in our country. There's a bunch of reasons for those. I'm not going to go through all of those. Interestingly enough, the main one is postponement of pregnancy within marriage, so just kind of waiting, right? It's kind of interesting. Infertility itself, the way I explain this is infertility is a symptom. It's a symptom. So um, if you have a cold for three weeks, there's something causing that, right? Right? There's something, it's a virus, it's bacteria, whatever, we all guess, we never really know for sure, take a Z-Pack, right? But something's <laughs> causing it, right? Something's causing it. Well, that's what infertility is. It's due to an underlying cause. Unless the woman is sterile or the man is sterile, meaning no sperm or no eggs, and some people are born that way, but that's very rare, then it's due to an underlying issue. And those underlying issues are wide and broad. Male factor is a big chunk, about a quarter. Ovulatory is the biggest on the female side, so polycystic ovarian syndrome, ovarian uh, deficiency, those types of things. Tubal damage, endometriosis, and so on. So to evaluate infertility, you have to throw a huge net out there and evaluate everything. And it's not usually one thing, okay? There might be one leading factor, but there's usually four or five that are hand in hand, and they're usually connected to each other, okay? Mainstream treatment strategies, so this is kind of how it's worked up. You go to the gynecology, you say, you, the gynecology say, I'm having trouble achieving. It's been a year, we're a little worried. Typically, a, a kind of a cursory evaluation is done, a pelvic ultrasound, some baseline hormones. And some short-term factors are introduced, some ovulatory medicines, those types of things. That's quickly graduated to intrauterine insemination with medications and then in vitro fertilization. And so these are all artificial reproductive methods. Intrauterine insemination is when the sperm is inserted into the uterus and the ovaries are triggered. In vitro fertilization is when the ovaries are triggered, the eggs are removed, the embryo is fertilized in a lab, and then implanted back into the uterus. Okay. 
So that is the stepwise structure today. So if you're encountering infertility, you went to a gynecology office, they would do these things, uh, a little short-term treatment, if not referral to reproductive endocrinology. And in this day and age, that's largely artificial reproductive technology. That's largely what uh, is being done this day and age um, uh, for couples who are experiencing infertility. Now, uh, there are some issues with, with artificial reproductive technology. I'm not gonna get into all of them, but it's estimated that approximately four embryos are transferred, three and a half per uh, artificial reproductive cycle. This is some old data from 2001. But the idea is you do have to transfer several embryos for that one pregnancy to take. So you do have embryo wastage with this, okay? Embryos per live birth, so about seven embryos for every live birth, okay? <clears throat> no pregnancy, so the pregnancy rate, the no pregnancy rate is actually pretty high. So I think a lot of people think, you know, well, in vitro it's 100%, you know? Um, and, um, uh, and that's not the case. So there is a high failure rate, and those, de th those do depend on multiple factors. And then in, essentially we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing in helping couples with infertility with artificial reproductive technology? Are we doing a good job? Are we covering folks? Well, it, th this was estimated in this study by Chandra that only about 0.5% of women or couples with impaired fertility are actually helped with IVF or ART. That's a very poor, that's a very low number, right? That's not very good. So if you have 100 people in a room, one half of one person is being helped by the treatment, right? So, so with artificial reproductive technology, what we find is an adequate diagnosis is not always made, okay? What happens is the underlying issue is oftentimes ignored and bypassed for the artificial uh, in vitro fertilization cycle which results in a lack or focus on human fertility and the underlying causes, right? And an apparent lack of concern for the healthcare women who are undergoing those issues, okay? Um, uh, a good example is I, I had a patient not too long ago who had gone through three cycles of IVF uh, and had never had a laparoscopy done. Nobody had looked in her pelvis to see if anything was going on. She didn't have a whole lot of pain. Um, and, and, uh, and so they, I guess they assumed there was no issues there. Uh, the laparoscopy revealed extensive pelvic adhesive disease, scar tissue. The entire left fallopian tube was completely scarred shut. She had extensive endometriosis. She had a uterine fibroid, very small, a little growth on the uterus. that was blocking the good tube. So her left tube was totally scarred shut, and the right tube was closed by a fibroid. And nobody thought to look. We treated that surgically, and that patient went on within two cycles to achieve pregnancy. That is unbelievable. That's just missing underlying issues that are going on in the jump for artificial treatments or in the rush for kind of that immediate treatment of things. And so as our kind of our, our kind of mainstream medicine has gone that way, we've left certain patients in the dust with regards to looking for the issue, right? Okay, right? So you, want, you don't want to have your symptom forever, right? You want to have the underlying cost treated. You want that antibiotic, right? You don't want to have your cold forever. The issue with the artificial reproductive technologies is your infertility is never cured. Okay? So you rely on it for every pregnancy because you still have infertility. You have the pregnancy, you have the baby, but you still have infertility. Now, for technologies designed to unlock the underlying causes, treat them so the couple can go on with their life. We see patients every day where they're on two or three, and I haven't seen them in a couple years. 
That's the most rewarding thing. When they're done, they don't need to worry about it anymore. Okay? Um, now, no treatment modality can promise a pregnancy. Okay? You just cannot. Artificial methods can't. Ours can't. We don't, we don't say that's the case. But we do focus on the underlying causes, which oftentimes are, are missed. When we look to the church's teaching on this, the church says in Dono Vitae, um, a true and proper right to a child would be contrary to the child's dignity and nature. Okay? I think in a way we think, you know what? We're ready to start our family. We're ready to have that child. And now it's hard and we really want it. We want it, want it, want it, want it so bad. And having a family is so intrinsically important. It's central to so many people and all the things that we really want in life and our goals. And so I think we start to think that. But the church says if you do that, you're taking something away from that child. You're looking at that child as a right and not a gift. And as we start to divorce God from the marital act and creation and co-creating, all of a sudden we've, we put God over here, we've got contraception over here, we only want to create with God when we're ready, and in the meanwhile we're going to suppress everything, well then it's, it's in a way, the artificial reproductive technologies kind of fit that gap, which is kind of that, well now I'm ready to have a child, and so I want that reproductive medicine to do that. Does that make sense? But in a way, we're divorcing ourselves from that nice pyramid, which is the married couple and where God fits in all of this. And the church teaches on that. The child is not an object. We don't have a right to that child. It's not ownership. It is the supreme gift in marriage. The supreme gift, okay? Marriage itself does not confer upon spouses the right to have a child. It just does not. Only the right to perform the acts per se ordered to procreate. Okay? So just because we're married doesn't mean we have the right to a child. Okay? The church's response, treatment strategies, NAPRO technology, the, the way we work through it is we assess for the underlying causes. We treat the underlying causes in hopes of achieving a pregnancy. If unsuccessful, we research the unknown causes. And if medically unsuccessful, we assist with successful family planning, which adoption, those types of things. We encourage that. So we have couples who come to us all, all the time. They go through this process. They may achieve and then adopt later. They feel called to that, but we encourage adoption. We don't see that as a failure. We truly believe that some couples are meant to adopt, right? It's so incredibly important. There's so many children out there that need good adopted families, um, and there's certainly families that are called to do that. We start with the charting system. We do a very thorough evaluation for all of the underlying causes, not missing things like pelvic adhesive disease, the fibroids, kind of the example I gave you. We treat the disease process in a targeted fashion in conjunction with the natural act. So these couples are trying to achieve on their own at home, not in the doctor's office, not with us looking over them, but on their own in attempting to achieve pregnancy and then encourage adoption. So we'll get back to that chart again here, and I'll show you some infertility charts. So this is a couple who had no white babies, right? It's all green. And I told you, you need white babies. And so gynecologists don't usually ask in the gynecology office, um, well, have you had cervical mucus this month? You know, I don't know if I was ever, even rest, I don't think we ever talked about it. But it's incredibly important, okay? And with cervical mucus being low or absent in this chart, this patient stands great difficulty in achieving. And this is something she wouldn't even know. In addition to our studies have shown that these hormone profiles are significantly lower in women with limited mucus. Endometriosis is higher 
in those women too. This is a patient with a dry cycle, so she, you, she re we really don't know how that sperm could get to the egg, or very difficult, and an abnormal bleeding pattern. What you can see here is, this bleeding here, is related to low progesterone, low estrogen. This is a limited mucus cycle, so this patient only had a couple days to try to achieve, and again, her hormone parameters are off. This is another chart of limited mucus that you can see, and abnormal bleeding patterns. Okay. By evaluating the hormones during that window, you can treat those hormones, and you can relieve this abnormal bleeding and enhance the health and fitness of the endometrium as the ovary ovulates, and that baby's ready to implant right here. This is all related to infertility, these hormones right here, which, as you've learned, is related to PCOS and PMS and all those other things, too, that we talked about, too. This is a graph of research that was done showing the correlation of limited mucus, all those charts you just look at, and other factors, okay? Pelvic adhesions, significantly higher, endometriosis, infertility, miscarriage, and laparoscopy, okay? Uh, and no laparoscopy on infertility, so significantly higher in all these versus normal controls. So just seeing on the chart, you know that there's underlying issues that are going on that are related to that. These are hormone curves from infertility couples. So this is the estrogen surge around the time of ovulation. This is post-ovulatory progesterone, and this is estrogen. You're just looking at them a different way. They're significantly lower than women with normal fertility. Okay, makes sense. Their fingers are the same hand, right? Okay. This is a couple who had dry cycles. She was started on a supplement that we give every day in the office to help with cervical mucus. They had one day, they used it, and there's their pregnancy right there. <laughs> this is a couple that had limited mucus, very abnormal hormone profile. You can see low sperm count, okay? So even men who have low sperm counts with the fertility-focused intercourse we talked about, those couples can achieve uh, very accurately because they know what days to use, right? So limited mucus, endometriosis, ovarian dysfunction, low sperm. In spite of all these, she was treated with the natural, uh, the natural procreative cooperative protocols, and they achieved pregnancy. Okay. These are three charts of couples who had very low sperm, severe oligospermia. So that's very, very, very low, almost zero. And these are all couples who achieved using time intercourse, NAPRO treatments with their cycle. And those are some of the examples of the medical treatments. We're almost done, just five more minutes. Um, on the other hand, there's very significant disease processes that affect the pelvis and reproductive disorders, and oftentimes they are silent. One of those is endometriosis. I mentioned the patient earlier. Unfortunately, as kind of as a profession uh, or as a medical field, we've gotten so far away from treating these underlying issues. Okay? Um, endometriosis is not evaluated. Uh, in infertility practices for the most part, unless the patient has severe pain or a finding on ultrasound. Uh, tubal dysfunction, disease, severe scar tissue. A lot of these disease processes are very severe, very challenging to treat in order to restore fertility. Within NAPRO, we've started surgical NAPRO technology, which is a fellowship program in reconstructive, minimally invasive surgery. And that's what we do at Methodist in our reproductive program there. It's designed in reconstructing the reproductive organs in a scar tissue-free manner and allowing that system to work. So oftentimes we see the tube is so badly destroyed, we just removed her tube. Or there's endometriosis all over the ovary, so we took it out. Or it's so bad, the pain will do a hysterectomy, right? But that impacts young women and their fertility, okay? 
We saw two patients today with severe endometriosis of the ovary, big endometriomas, huge cysts, they're huge. They're the size of oranges. They're, they're young women, weren't trying to achieve yet. I think one was and one wasn't. Severe pain in one and none in the other. The other one was just having trouble achieving. When we did the surgery, there's scar tissue from that endometriosis, not only affecting ovulation, these were in couples who had regular cycles because they're still ovulating, but the, all the basic plumbing, the framework was so distorted they didn't stand a chance from all of the disease that was going on. And so we've specialized surgical techniques now as reproductive surgeons to treat the disease, fix the ovaries, the tubes, reconstruct the natural fertility while getting the disease out of there. And if you do that, as I say, the basic plumbing starts to work again, right? And we see pregnancies from that. But these treatments have largely been ignored, okay? Largely been ignored in the kind of rush for artificial treatments or the suppressive mentality. Does that make sense? They're also very difficult to treat. They're time consuming. Um, and so in that aspect of things, right, um, uh, the, this, uh, the, the regular treatment has gone away from it. Does that make sense? This is a surgical fellowship and all of these things you see here which are so important. So the church's response in women's health has resulted in cooperative infertility treatments that correct the underlying dysfunction, resulting in lasting infertility assistance, okay? Modern treatments, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever kind of side you're on that, act largely by circumventing fertility within its natural context without achieving true infertility treatment. This is our new society I mentioned. I'm very proud of the Society for Procreative Surgeons. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the papal key. And this is the light of technology and research. So right now, just in my practice, we have three research projects going on right now. One we just published on the association between infection of the uterus and endometriosis. So women can get infection of the uterus, not even know it, and it affects miscarriage, and it affects inflammation of the uterine lining, and it affects fertility, uh, and it's correlated to endometriosis. So all of these things are not looked for, but these are our growing group of fellowship-trained OBGYNs in this area that are all over the country. And out of those 20 or 25, there's four here in Houston, which is so awesome. Uh, and of course, it's named after St. John Paul the Great, because again, all of this is stemmed from the call of Pope Paul and St. John, Paul the Great, for women and men of science to work at and research treatment of the underlying cause for women and couples who are experiencing these issues. And it's so incredibly important for those affected by it. This is our mission statement. I'm not going to read you that. Um, and this is the last slide I have, uh, which really just reiterates what we just talked about. So, I hope in summary, and I only went five minutes over, so please don't kill me if your babysitter's like yelling at you or texting you right now. Um, I hope you've learned tonight the important message that in terms of natural family planning and the ability to achieve and avoid and a true family planning system, that exists. And it's all come from the church and it's standing firm in terms of respecting marriage, couples, and the individual female reproductive system. And I think we, our mind is such that that's such a negative thing, that why didn't we just go with everybody else? It's so weird, I don't even wanna tell people. The church is just, I don't get it, whatever. Um, but it has resulted in a whole new form of gynecologic science 
that helps in these areas in a cooperative fashion. And it's all I do every day in the world's largest medical center at a hospital that y'all know. So it isn't like we're you know, in these kind of uh, backwoods kind of areas, right? And so we're really proud of that. And so that has all come from the church and its focus on couples, the true reproductive system, and that cooperative and, and fostering and nurturing those things. Um, and so I just want to leave you on that note. I am happy to take any questions. I know I ran long. I could talk about this till midnight, but Mary does, she only has decaf in there. She doesn't have regular, so I think we're stuck. Thank you for your attention. You guys were so great, but I am happy to take any questions. And anybody who needs to get up and run can, but I'll stay for any questions that anybody has. Or any comments or concerns or thoughts, please. Yeah. Just being of the mindset you are in a field that is very contradictory. To yeah. That, what's it like with your colleagues? Do they yeah. look down on you? It's or a great question. Like... That's a really good question. Um, it, it's great. Um, we have a really collegial relationship. And so I think what we, what we have is an understanding there's just different approaches. And, and, and it is true that patients do desire different approaches, right? I think there are folks who the contraception, the artificial approach is fine. And that's what they would like and look for, right? But I think what's happened is we've just gone so far to that's the only option, right? And I think we need to unpack that and learn that these are issues that could be treated in a cooperative or a natural sense. And so oftentimes I see the patients that, you know, they don't want to see, <laughs> meaning uh, that patient doesn't want to be on birth control and, and or, or, you know, uh, is having trouble with infertility and doesn't quite know, and so they're happy to send them over to me. I think when you work in this area, certainly there's a, a deep-seated, you know, Catholic religious background to it, right? But what we're doing is basic gynecology and, 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 um, uh, and really advanced way, but you know what I mean. It's just good, solid medicine, right? It stemmed from the church's teachings, and that's so incredibly important, but it stems from the idea that, that the female body is uniquely designed, the reproductive system is, there's dysfunction there, and can we treat it in its natural sense? Does that make sense? So a wonderful relationship with them. Uh, and, um, and certainly, uh, even I get patients who don't want to do our type of thing, and, 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 uh, and, and, you know, and it adds balance, so to speak, right? Any other questions or thoughts or concerns? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, what is your thought on the Creighton model being used with kind of a contraceptive mentality? Remind me, what's your name? Claire. Claire, nice to meet you. Uh, so say that again. What's my... What's my, say that again, I just missed the question. Oh, Using uh, Creighton with? With the contraceptive mentality of like just kind of desiring that control and like I want two kids and I want them like two yeah. apart. Yeah, I think that's just human nature. I think some people are just that way. Uh, I think the contraceptive mentality is, I, I think what you're saying is more of an av avoiding related mentality. And so when we talk in this system, we don't say contraception. We say either um, uh, achieving related behavior or avoiding. And so we certainly have couples who want to control and want to avoid and those types of things. But keep in mind that no system is 100%, right? Not even a tubal ligation is. You know, we see pregnancies after tubal ligation or vasectomy. You think it is, but it's not. That's pretty rare. So I don't want anybody to go, oh my gosh, what? You know, but it's pretty rare. But nothing's 100%. And so it gets back to what uh, the church is teaching at the very beginning where it said that possibility of parenthood, right? And so I'm accepting all of you. But the body has a natural um, uh, fertility valve, which is the cervical mucus. And there's 25 days out of the month or more where, you, where just couples cannot get pregnant. 
And it's okay to have that knowledge and use that knowledge prayerfully, right? And so, so I leave that to the couples to discern, just like any decision we make in life, right? I mean, that really comes down to prayerfully discerning, working through that on an individual basis. I'm not one to say that somebody's heart's in the wrong place or not, uh, but uh, the system is designed to be a natural method to avoid. Um, it is uh, a periodic absence, of course, and so there are days during the month where uh, certainly avoiding is, is needed, right? Um, and we have couples who come in to our clinic who are avoiding, who are avoiding all the time, and they come in for the consult to we can't achieve. We have patients who have heart conditions who can't achieve pregnancy. They just cannot do that. And in fact, in NAPRO, I didn't touch on this today, we have the only method that is 100%, um, a 100%, um, what am I trying to say, ability to avoid pregnancy, okay? And so we've actually partnered with our cardiology department, the DeBakey Cardiology Transplant Department, in terms of any patients who want to use the charting system. A progesterone level is drawn post-ovulation, and when it's at a certain level, we know with exact certainty that the woman is ovulated, and they are able to use those days. Okay, so we have couples who are going through chemotherapy treatments and all those things, and you can use that charting system. So it's very advanced in that way. So that's a good question, great question. Any other questions? Any at all? If no? You, yeah, yeah. If you yeah. are using the Creighton system, when do you know, or when do you get the feeling, like maybe I do need to call one of these practitioners, or maybe I'm still figuring it out? Um, in terms of the charting? Right. Well, to learn the charting system, you learn through a practitioner. Right. Well, yeah. so, so you're having your regular follow-up. Uh -huh. You said one of the doctors said you want to start achieving a pregnancy. Yeah. When do you kind of know, it's like, I might have trouble, or maybe we just try and see if we have trouble, or do you recommend seeing someone first? In terms of fertility and trying to achieve in your charting, and, and, and just speaking to infertility, we say six months. Yeah. So six months and no conception using the fertile days. Uh, then we would want to see you sooner because our studies have shown 100 should be pregnant in six months. Um, and so now there are things that will be picked up from time to time, even the practitioner will note, and they'll say, you know what, I think you've got some abnormal bleed, probably might want to get a little sooner. And of course, we'll see patients all the time for that preconception consult, sure. just like when you'd go see your OB and say, you know, hey, we're thinking the next six months, prenatal vitamins, good idea, right? You know, and stay away from Zika. Mm -hmm. And so we'll do the same thing, yeah. but we'll also <laughs> review the fertile window with them in their chart, and maybe there's a little bit of mucus, and at that time we want to start them on mucus support, right, and those types of things, so. So we do see preconception consults all the time with the charting system, so. And we might even pick up, you know what, we think you might have some low progesterone here. You got some abnormal bleed, you have severe PMS or PCOS, we might do an initial investigation that's a little earlier than would need to be done, but, um, but better to be addressed sooner rather than later, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Every time, you meet with your yeah. every time you meet with your practitioner, that's something that we're trying to do. Like every single time we're looking at a chart and a follow-up, we will say to you, all right, this, you know, this is, this is what we're seeing. We, that, that's something that's talked about in every single follow-up so that you're not like, wait, we've been going along for all this time and we didn't know yeah. whatever. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's a part of every single follow-up that you're talking about so that you, you do have that sense. You know, and so, yeah, you can be ahead of a lot. So it's a real, it's a really wonderful tool that way to be able to right. be ahead of the game. So there's certainly couples that see Byron and Mary that we never see. <laughs> They're just using it for family planning or even young women who are charting. We actually encourage women to start charting once their periods start. So a lot of our, our, our uh, data is showing that, and, and, and there is a lot of good research on this, the sooner 
you identify these issues and tackle them, the better off you're going to be later on down the road. So that's one of the problems I see with birth control and contraception is in a way we're delaying the workup. Um, we see so many patients who come in and say, I have bad pain or irregular cycles. And, uh, and so I was on the birth control pill all through high school and college and I felt good. And of course, that's great. We want everybody to feel good, right? And so, but in a way, there's we see where there's 10 or 15 years where you might have, we might have missed the ability to start working on things in a little bit more of a cooperative fashion. These th the, when you're working on a gynecologic issue, it's not usually just a prescription and a pill, which is easy to do. Um, it, it usually requires some work up, some time, a little bit of effort, just like when you're trying to solve any issue uh, that you're experiencing, right? And so, so I think one of the reasons the birth control pill has taken off is because it's easy. It's easy in the gynecology practice. Um, our practice is kind of hard. You know, we kind of have patients come in. We got, oh my gosh, I don't know. There's a whole reason why you have bleeding patterns. We got to have your PMS. You know, we got to get the hormones. You just get to start charting. So it's a little bit more difficult. There's more legwork. But I, I feel like it's it's rewarding for those couples because and those patients because they really get the answer that they need and then hopefully stem those issues later on down the road or, or, or all together, which is really nice. So I do think that's why contraception has taken off. It, not just the medical aspect we talked about at the beginning. But also there's like that, that kind of contraceptive mentality that we have, which, you know, the bonus is you're not going to have any children on this. Uh, and so therefore it's kind of a win-win. And I think that's the way the, uh, the general thinking is in, in just kind of society in general and in general medicine too. And going through residency and medical school, we don't learn these things. We just don't learn them. Um, they're just not taught. And so as you go out there and meet with your gynecologist, don't be mad at them. You know, please don't. It's just... We just learn a different way, and they're taught that way. It's it's that's the way the system is set up, and that's the education we get. So, um, I think in this day and age too, we've got podcasts and everything from diet to how that affects inflammation of the brain. I think as a society in general, we're learning so much more about our overall health and more natural treatment options. Right, gluten free, dairy. Right, um, avoid Shipley's altogether. Just don't go there. <laughs> Uh, but you know what I mean, right? And so um, yeah, this really fits hand in hand with, with a lot of those things and a lot of desires that people have in that regard. So, And keep in mind, too, there's a lot of patients who can't take the birth control pill or contraception or, or whatever because, you know, they have a blood clot or bleeding disorder or elevated blood pressure or, or very real reasons why they couldn't do that. So. Um, any other questions? Great, Dr. Yeah. Hilders, if people got your... Oh, yeah, I brought some if you want it. Um, if you want my contact information, yeah, certainly. That uh, that's in no way a plug for my practice, please. I'm here just to talk about uh, what we love to do here. Any other questions at all? Or uh, Well, y'all enjoy your night. Yeah, yeah. One more question in the back. Please, if you need to go, y'all can run off. Yeah. This might be obvious, but if this is something we're interested in, how does one get started? Just Google up. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's probably the biggest question, right? So fertilitycare.org. So fertilitycare.org, which is the charting system, ha has every practitioner around the world listed. In the Houston area, there's about 20 or so. I forget how many are. Yeah, yeah, that's probably about yeah. 24, And so you can literally just reach out to them. Their information is there. On that website, all the medical consultants and the fellows are on there too. So you can even find a medical consultant um, uh, in your area. Um, I mentioned the four here in the Houston area. Yeah, a good thing to start with, too, is an intro session. So, like, at St. Michael, we have at least one a month here. Um, they're free if you want to come to St. Michael's. And that kind of introduces you to charting. A lot of what Dr. Hilders talked about today is in there, but it shows you the hows of charting and the hows of observations. But you don't get any materials unless you actually schedule a follow-up with a practice.
practitioner. So we want to mm -hmm. make sure you're not going to try to go, go it alone. You don't want to go it alone. <laughs> yeah. you wanna, yeah. it's, it's really, everybody's, every woman's body is so different, every couple's situation is so different that it really is, it is important to, to work with a practitioner. And just in general, it's, it's helpful um, to get to, you know, say two, three cycles of charting before you go and see a medical consultant because then they've got, you can get a little bit of ahead of the game because then any sort of, that, that gives like so that gives Dr. Hilgers a sense of okay this is already what's going on you've already got a sense of this so if he wants to order certain blood work or look at things a certain way you're already working with a good a good amount of knowledge too right everything so. is individualized that's a good point Byron mm -hmm. even in the office on the medical plan and treatment you know we certainly sit down with the folks and say you know what do you want to do and how do you want to go about it things are so individualized really in this area. Yeah. Um, and each case is unique. There's no such thing as that normal 28-day cycle. Oh I haven't seen it yet. I'm still waiting for it to come. Everybody thinks they have one. Yeah, but it doesn't exist. Everybody's different, so yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you all. Sorry we ran so long. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Well, do you recommend I call to try to get a call? Or? No, buddy. You just give me your name. And I'll write it down. I'll have my nurse give you a call. Sound good?